Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. We're in. We're in. <laughs> Hello, dearies. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode 51. It has been a long time since I've said that intro. Mm-hmm. Why so, Matt? Well, we've had... Well, you kept the uh, the rate of podcast releases up, so people may not have noticed, but um, I was away for, for two whole weeks at the beginning of July. Um, had a very nice trip to sort of southwest Utah and uh, northern Arizona around the national parks and some of the state parks around there in an RV, my first RV experience with uh, with my three kids and my wife. It was awesome. Cool. Did you see some rocks? Oh, my God. The, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you'd call geology a lottery, but if it was a lottery, Utah would have would have won it because <laughs> this is the geology is ridiculous you know you're standing on like zion national park uh and many of the parks around there have this similar sort of pattern similar sort of stack of uh stratigraphy you're standing in like you know fossil sand dunes this beautiful trough cross bedding and uh, amazing colors uh it's kind of red and pink and orange and white sandstones and uh and then they've been carved into these amazing canyons, you know, so the geomorphology is also awesome and the modern sort of side of it. But there's also sort of, uh, I don't know, I think they're sort of 100 to 20,000 year old lava flows kind of pouring over everything with little cinder cones every now and again. And it's just, it's just crazy. And it, everything's sort of beautifully weathered into these incredible cliffs and things. So you can see it all, it's right in your, Face. So just the contrast, I just wonder what if geology had been kind of delayed by, I don't know, 50 or 100 years, I feel like it would be a, it would be a completely, the science would be rooted in the US. Because right now I think of geology as being historically rooted in the UK and British geology. Um, you know, it's where a lot of the sort of archetypal outcrops and uh, you know the thrust the original thrust fault and stuff like that are there but you go and visit some of some of those outcrops not all of them the moin thrust is pretty cool but there's you know i remember visiting the shap granite as an undergraduate at durham and it's literally like a little you walk into the middle of this muddy field surrounded by sheep in the rain and there's a tiny outcrop that you could park a mini on and hide it um utah's not like that <laughs> you know there's your geology over there you could spend a whole career on any one outcrop it's awesome so geology is only one of your interests geophysics is also one of your interests i mention it because we're going to cover only one more bullet point of news yes. this morning because i apologize to our audience for being late my computer doesn't like me very much so, <clears throat> what's happening in Houston on the 22nd to the 24th of September, Matt? 
So we're doing a, another hackathon, <laughs> which I realize might be becoming sort of old news to a lot of our listeners. But um, yeah, time to get excited all over again. <laughs> another geophysics hackathon uh, in Houston in September, right before it's the weekend before SEG. And we haven't found a location for it yet, but we're going to. Uh, very close, I think, to uh, having a, a location that we'll probably announce next week. And um, it's going to be downtown Houston anyway. That's the gist of it. Uh, the theme is going to be machine learning again, because uh, you know we only scratched the surface in Paris. So we're going to have another crack at that one. And yeah, it'd be awesome to see that. And even if you can't come yourself, dear listener, please do help us spread the word, because we've only got a couple of months lead time on this one to actually get well, I'm aiming for 10 teams, so 50 people. Please and thank you. Cool. I'm psyched. It's going to be oh, awesome. But quick, but just very quick footnote, because we'll talk about it again in the future. But since I already mentioned Utah, APG is in Salt Lake City, Utah next spring in May. We, there's going to be some machine learning geology stuff happening at APG. So start getting excited. I'm not sure I can handle all these all this excitement. There's too many, too many events. Why don't yeah, you? Okay, okay, we'll cancel that one. <laughs> Why don't you introduce our guest, please? Yeah. So, um, thank you. And uh, we seem to have him with us. He's he's muted right now. I see. He's joined us on his phone. Um, Aaron Foyer. Is it Foyer or Foyer? Foyer. Aaron Foyer. Uh, from Energy Minute. Energy Minute is uh, so far. I only I know there's a website. I know there's a Twitter account. Um, and I came to Aaron's stuff through a slightly convoluted route, probably after a really cool geothermal session uh, at the uh, CSPG conference or the the Geo conference, the Geo convention in Calgary in May. And um, I followed some links through the, like the Canadian Geothermal Energy Association and um, eventually ended up at Energy Minute. And I thought, wow, these guys seem really cool. They're trying to um, promote sort of awareness and policy around uh, energy use in Canada. Um, and maybe beyond that, I'm not sure. We'll find out from Erin in a minute. And I thought it'd be fun to uh, find out a bit more about these guys and what they're up to. So hi, Erin, and thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Where, uh, whereabouts have we found you today? Today, I am in Calgary. So I just moved back from London, England, where I was working with a renewables company and decided to come back to Calgary. Ah, OK, cool. Um, so how long were you in the UK? For six months. OK, nice. Uh, are you from uh, Alberta? Is that home for you? Yeah, born and raised in Calgary. OK, awesome. And so, um, yeah, what like uh, what's your kind of background? Are you uh, an, uh, so kind of a policy wonk or are you an engineer or where, where are you coming from professionally? So my original background, I, I'm a geoscientist. I have degrees in geology and geophysics from the UFC. Uh, so I worked for five years in the oil and gas industry in Calgary. And then uh, I figured in the downturn was a good time to go get my MBA. So I just got my MBA over in Europe and then worked for six months in the renewable sector and then decided right. to come back to Calgary because it's home and it's interesting. Yeah, right. That's that's really cool. So um, ha like, uh, 
had you ha had an interest in kind of uh, the business side and uh, and that before, or how did you? Um, what made you decide? Apart from this, the I guess the downturn. Um, were you thinking, oh, I'll you know see if I can pick up these skills and see what happens to oil and gas, or like more like let's take things in a different direction? Um, I think I don't have a particularly bright outlook for. <laughs> is for especially geophysicists in Alberta. And so I think that so part of it was I just wanted to get an additional skill set that would help me hopefully have a slightly longer career. Yeah. Um, but no, that's not to say I don't believe in geology or geophysics, because that's where all the um, all the magic happens in oil and gas. But yeah, add on additional um, set of interests. Yeah, yeah, cool. And um, what kind of renewables were you working on then in uh, in London? So I worked with a fund called Camco, and they do their they do investments into renewable projects in what they call emerging markets, which is really Africa, and right. uh, and so it was mostly like uh, mostly wind and solar, and some hydro projects and a few biomass projects. So really the whole spectrum. Yeah, right. So there, um, you were doing sort of uh, research, were you, to, to help them figure out what what might make a good investment? Yeah. So I was doing I was doing finance, so like writing financial models for them to try to figure out which projects were economically viable. Cool. Like how, yeah, like how well constrained are those sort of models in that market? Yeah. <laughs> Like, do, do you know what I mean? I'm just wondering um, it, it, how much. Uh oh, did we lose you for a sec there? Oh, we've lost uh, your I visuals. Think, I, th uh, I think we've lost Aaron. So let's cover some more news. Oh, no, there he is. Sorry, there, the, there he is. Yeah. Sorry, it was cutting in and out for a second. Did you catch my question? I didn't. Okay, uh, so um, you said you're working on uh, financial models, you know, for renewables, in, mostly in the uh, in, in Africa, and I wondered how well constrained those models are, or, or if I mean, presumably there's a lot of uncertainties because a lot of those technologies probably aren't tested at scale yet. Yeah, you know, it's renewables is really interesting. So coming from oil and gas, where everything is commodity driven. The big uncertainty is really future revenues. Like, if the price of oil or gas goes down, that's sort of the big risk for um, for these projects. Where in renewables, oftentimes you'll have the utility company who will guarantee a certain rate of return for a wind project. So they'll say, "Okay, we're going to guarantee you that you'll get a 10% return, and we'll pay you whatever it takes to." to meet that return. And so in that sense, there's a lot less risk. Hmm. The big risk in Africa is, will the utility company actually pay? Because it's a lot less regulated. It's um, There's certainly a lot more corruption in the countries. And so the risk is very different. It's a lot more to do with regulation and the physical, and like, I guess, corruption within the companies rather than the than renewables themselves and the projects. Oh, yeah, I see. So the sort of stability of the 
parameters around the project is so how much geo how much sort of physical science goes into the financial modeling if any or is it all um, based around corporate risk yeah very not that much i think the if you were to look at geothermal projects there there probably is a fair bit of um that's where you'll have all your geologic risk like whether or not you're going to hit a hot pocket or how long that can actually be sustained um but with with like wind projects and solar projects i think that engineers typically have a pretty good idea of how, you know like how much is the sun going to shine on a particular part of the world they have a pretty good idea of how that's going to be so they have an understanding of like how much electricity a certain area is going to generate yeah that's right. interesting do they what 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 kind of like historical record do people keep on wind averages and solar radiation and i mean is it pretty extensive it, it depends on the country so prior to um prior to any of these climate agreements i don't think that there was that many because there wasn't really a, a push for it but now there's a lot of um international community so uh, to try to develop these models to have a good understanding of you know where is a good place to put a wind farm or how much um, how much solar they call it solar radiance how much solar radiance does a specific area have so once you have like if you have a satellite you can measure solar radiance on a whole country and you do that over the course of five years and then you have a pretty good idea of how much sunshine it's going to get Interesting. Yeah, right. So, uh, so you've moved on, and and now Energy Minute is a thing. What is Energy Minute? Uh, energy Minute is um, it's sort of an answer to a frustration that um, myself and the other founder, Alexandria Shrake. Um, so we're both kind of frustrated that, specifically when it comes to news and information, it's very it's very divisive. So energy is a very divisive subject in Canada. And it's very difficult to get news that sort of supports both sides. So like if you talk to most Canadians, I think that there's a strong belief that you can have uh, responsible resource development while promoting the advancement of green energies. I think that that's a pretty commonly held belief. But if you look at the like major news sources that people get, oftentimes it's, you know, like we have to stop oil and gas production today or um, green energies are not at all the solution. And so Energy Minute was a way to try to, you know, stick ourselves in the, in the center, say like you can have both and to look at it from a scientific perspective. So both Alex and I are, are scientists by background, both in geoscience, and we just wanted to put the facts and the figures in front of people. So then people can think about them themselves and own conclusions. Like we're not here to tell people that oil is good and renewables are bad or vice versa. We just want to put the data in front of people and then let people think about it themselves. So you're not funded by an oil company? No, we've, uh, we've been pretty, all, all of our funding so far has come from, uh, from private individuals 
And we we make sure we've actually had a number of organizations come forward who've been like, okay, we'll pay you to have to put out a video on the carbon tax that comes out against the carbon tax. And and we've actually said, like, look, we're not interested in doing that. We want to, we don't really want to take a side. We just want to uh, find, find the data and then put it in front of people and let people come up with their own conclusions. So I spent all morning watching every one of your videos and looking at every one of your infographics because they're really good. I mean, they're, they're not only are they data heavy and informative, they're also ridiculously pretty and, <laughs> and stylistically awesome. How, so how do you, how does one do business with Energy Minute? I mean, is it, 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 it seems to me like you're putting a lot of cool stuff out online, um, mm -hmm. but um, is it, do you interface with, with clients individually? You mean to, to get funding? No, I mean like uh, what's, is there a service or is there a product offered? No, our, I, for right now, what we're going, we're, we simply focus on uh, videos, infographics, and then as we have more money to develop uh, other tools, we're going to have, uh, I don't know if you've checked out our website, but we'll be, all of our videos and infographics are there right now. Mm -hmm. um, but they, in the future, there will be more interactive maps. So we'll be pulling a lot of um, the Government of Canada website and the, the National Energy Board website, both which are just like flush with information, but they're so boring that no one ever goes there and they're presented yeah. just tables. So we're actually gonna take that data and turn it into you know maps of Canada and see where, um, so you can be able to click like, okay, I wanna see where wind generation is happening in Canada and you'll be able to see, oh, like there's actually a lot that happens in Alberta and Saskatchewan, or you'll be able to see that there's a lot of hydro production in Quebec, or you'll be able to see where it consumes more natural gas. Um, and so it'll just be a way for people to, to learn more about where energy comes from. Cool. I like it. And so is the goal to put out one video a month or something? Is, is there a regular schedule, regular heartbeat to the thing? Um, we, we try to aim for, we try to have sort of like a theme for the month. So we'll have um, we'll have like a video on nuclear, and then that will be supported by uh, two or three nuclear infographics for the month. Um, cool. We've actually added a third person to our team, so we're hoping that as we have more people, we'll be able to generate more content. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Um, so go to the the website. By the way, is energyminute.ca. I didn't go. Check it out. As Aaron says, all the um, content is up there right now. And morning, you'll you'll spend an hour going through it all. It's it's awesome. Um, so we have a, a couple notes in here from both Matt and I about specifics of um, energy related stuffs. But I think Matt wrote a question here that says, "What's missing?" It's a sort of a high level question. What's missing from Canada's energy landscape? Do you mean in terms of energy sources or legislation or? Yeah, I guess I, I, think... was, I was thinking about everything. I mean, you, you've already highlighted uh, sort of impartial uh, data sources, if you like, and mm -hmm. reasoned debate yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a couple of uh, things that are missing from the energy landscape. And I totally, I totally agree. I think especially in Alberta, where the debate can be particularly fractious. <laughs> Sorry. 
Right. Yeah. I didn't mean <laughs> fractures. Maybe the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm interested in whether you think there is stuff that's missing from uh, policy and from kind of a research perspective of the things that Canada uh, is not paying attention to that it that it maybe should be. Um, I think I think a lot of it boils down to education, like. Hmm. Since Alex and I have started this, we've we've talked about Energy Minute with, you know, thousands of people, and I think that the and on all subjects, and I think the the big surprise for us has been some of the you know some basic parts of the energy education that are missing or energy literacy. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so different part, different sort of energy sources do different things. So oil is sort of the unique one because it generates gasoline and it generates jet fuel and plastics. And most of the other energy sources create electricity. So renewables, for example, create electricity. So there seems to be this rivalry between hmm. renewables and they occupy, in my mind at least, they occupy very different spaces in the energy landscape. And so to me, they're not rivals. Like you can have both the um, the development of oil and the development of re renewables, and they don't really compete for each other. But I think that the biggest surprise we've had is that in um, in the minds of a lot of people, that they do compete for each other, um, with each other. And so I think that having giving people sort of this basic level of, you know, if you were to substitute thing, what would it substitute with? Or if you were to substitute coal with something, what would it substitute with? And I think that having like having a better understanding of that will lead to better policy because people will be able to say, okay, I don't like coal. I think that a good replacement for coal is hydro, or I think that a good replacement for it is renewables. Um, and so I think that just the basic education there, I think is still, we still need to work on that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, just sort of to illustrate, I've cut the two things that come to my mind, you know, when you're talking about that, I guess it's basically an awareness and an education gap. Uh, um, you know, fracking was banned in Nova Scotia by the provincial government for uh, 10 years to get a handle on, you know, what the risks were and so on. And on the face of it, that's a reasonable decision 10 years is probably too long i would say to sort of put a moratorium on a technology just because you don't quite understand it yet um things tend to move faster than that but most people in nova scotia are opposed to fracking um mm -hmm. you know without obviously knowing a great deal about it meanwhile nova scotia generates most of its power from coal much of which is shipped here from south america for example venezuela which is crazy Right. And so, so, so fracking in that light becomes a horrible decision because if we have a source of natural gas that's right here, that's clearly a more sensible, to me anyway, a clearly more sensible um, strategy is to at least start investigating how much of a resource it is so that you can have a sensible conversation about where your energy is coming from, where you're, in this case, electrical power, how it's being generated. So that's, that's one thing that I always just think, you know, wow, what, 
none of that nuance came into the debate as far as I could tell. It was all this totally polarized, you know, fracking is terrible. I don't want flames coming out of my kitchen taps. That was the level of the debate. <laughs> um, the other thing, I just noticed a tweet the other day, and of course, Twitter's not exactly, well, Twitter is actually a massive source of information for people these days. But anyway, so, and it was, this was from like Business Insider or Forbes or some business oriented, but fairly legit um, outlet. And the headline was something like, forget, I, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, forget solar and hydrogen fuel cells. The future of uh, energy for transport is batteries. <laughs> I'm like, that, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, well, it's just like, you know, the, the, so even among the reporters that are supposedly sort of serving the communication of this kind of stuff, there's a sort of low level of understanding about electricity and where it comes from. Um, so, yeah, so I think you're doing, uh, you're doing really, Awesome work. Are you getting traction and getting invited to events or or to are people in Calgary kind of aware of what you're up to and getting you involved? Uh, yeah, definitely. The I think that the biggest surprise has just been how quickly um, people have latched onto it. Um, hmm. The the other half of Energy Minute is Alex. She's she's what people would call a super networker. So she seems to know everybody in uh, in town. I think she was the one who actually led that geothermal um, yes. talk. Yes. Yeah. So she she is definitely a, a familiar face around Calgary, and um, so I, I would say that we've had there's certain the the surprise that to, uh, to me was I was expecting a bunch of backlash hmm. for being pro oil and being pro renewables and it's been the exact opposite is that everyone has been very excited about the prospect of someone who can think of you know the positives of both sides hmm. yeah and uh do you um you know i think one of the things that the oil industry has really failed at is um some kind of empathy or sympathy with the with it with positions that oppose it, uh, basically a failure to kind of recognize um, people's fear of fracking, for example, right? So the see why it would be kind of worrying to have massive. Sorry, that, uh, that question didn't come through. Oh, okay. Um, I was just saying, uh, I, I feel like the industry has let itself down by not recognizing the reasonableness of people's fears around things like fracking that it, instead of saying, yeah, yeah, I get why having a bunch of fracking trucks running through your neighborhood uh, and seeing all this heavy machinery and stuff would freak people out. Instead, the reaction is there's nothing to worry about. We've been doing fracking for years. You guys should all just sort of leave us alone. You hippies. Well, you, you combat those fears with data, which is exactly what energy minute is doing, I think. Yeah, I mean, data is part of it, but I think, I think the the industry could be more um, sympathetic and more kind of just recognize that there's in the face of the uncertainty that exists around it, 
that some of that space is is going to fill with with fear basically and sure the fear may be overblown i'm not going to call it unfounded because i think you should probably be worried about industrial processes they do go wrong sometimes like you should ask questions <laughs> do you know what i mean yep. like um and you know engineers and scientists don't always know exactly what they're doing that's just uh, that's um you know likewise i would say that green groups need to recognize that industrial risk and say yeah there's a transaction we're making where we want to go on vacation and f fly goods over from china and have massive container ships going all over the world with us with our stuff in them um and right now in order to do that we need petroleum the the the, the recognition on both sides is completely lacking Indeed. so yeah so that's that's actually related to my next question, which is which it ha touches on the sort of balance of sourcing of energy. So um, we see changes, historical changes in energy sources, and my, I wonder if Energy Minute or anyone has enough data to determine what kind of ratio there is between the change in those sources, say from coal to petroleum, whatever, um, with respect to demand, consumer demand, and legislation. So, for mm. example, you know, uh, in the states we've made certain legislation in the past which uh, has limited or expedited the production of petroleum in certain regions, and when that happens, obviously production changes overall, um, shifts towards, say, coal or something. And um, that's that that's a, a piecewise shift in in the production, but also demand changes continuously. So um, can you, Aaron, can you touch on the, do, do you guys have enough data to make a analysis of demand versus legislative changes in energy production from which sources? Uh, I can't say that that's <laughs> something that we've looked at so far. Um, we have just, Canada just issued, um, uh, we've just started a carbon tax, a countrywide carbon tax. And so it's sort of, I don't think that there's any country out there that has a full-fledged carbon tax out there. So it will be interesting to see how that will have an effect on, like we do have coal production. Uh, and then of course we do have a lot of oil and gas production. So it'll be interesting to see sort of five years from now, how the carbon tax will have affected industry. Um, it, it's tough right now. Certainly legislation can have a big effect on where production comes from. Um, like you, if you look at Germany right now, they, uh, right after Fukushima, they, their people really, really turned against, um, against nuclear. And so uh, nationwide, they decided to start shutting down all their nuclear facilities. And they needed a power source that will, could keep up with what nuclear had given them. And right. even though they're a very green uh, country, they the only one that could match sort of the reliability of nuclear was coal. So they started shutting down all their nuclear plants and they started starting up a bunch of coal plants and so the net result was that their um, that their CO two started to go up. 
So depends on sort of the attitude of the people. Uh, you know, if, if you have people who really support <laughs> getting out of out of war, but if you have people go the other way too. Yeah, but like you say, when the people are not necessarily that well informed, maybe that's suboptimal. I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I think uh, the decision in Nova Scotia about fracking was essentially a popular decision. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think, obviously, I work in the oil and gas industry, so it's impossible for someone like me to say this in public, really. But I mean, I think it yeah. was a wrong decision. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think I'm objective, but obviously, <laughs> uh, you know, it's tricky, isn't it? So what's going to happen with energy production in the next 5, 10, 50 years? Uh, I mean, you, you talk to different people and people have different answers. Certainly with consumption, consumption is going to go way up. So it's uh, regardless of source, the total global energy consumption is supposed to go up by 50% by 2040, which is just a colossal amount of new energy. Hmm. So um, certainly we're in like the of but it's still only supposed to be like seven to 10% of our total, total energy use that will probably have more coal use, more oil use, more natural gas use. Um, everything is going to go up, I think, before it starts going down. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially the state of uh, of gas production in North America. I mean, now that we realize there's just a gigantic amount more to that resource than, than we realized, we can essentially make the price as low as anybody wants it to be. And yeah. it's because of that uh, that I think actually a carbon tax is a good thing. I mean, there is no, because uh, uh, without it, you would have, I think, unchecked growth of fossil fossil fuel use. And since apparently North Americans can't bear to pay any more for their gas, their gasoline, which is ridiculously cheap, especially in the US. I mean, it's crazy. Um, and people apparently won't tolerate paying a reasonable amount for their airfares and so on. Um, I, I don't see how else you you keep a lid on it, right? Because we we can just make we could make natural gas practically free in North America for the next two hundred years. I, you know, it's a bit of a hyperbolic statement, but not too far from the truth. Um, that's that's bad <laughs> as far as as far as global warming is concerned. Um, I think that's terrible. The, uh, it also takes the, the anxiety yeah. off the need to find a solution, which I think is a shame. Um, I've always found the, the lack of funding for nuclear fusion quite a tragedy. You know, I mean, it's it, I agree. Uh, the, the entire budget of the biggest fusion research project is less than the capital cost of a new natural gas installation in, say, you know, the South China Sea. I mean, 
we could we could just solve that. I feel like you know, we could solve that problem as an engineering problem that we can solve with money and time. And uh, it, the, the the interest just isn't there. Yeah, I think uh, I I really love nuclear as a source. I think that it's uh, I think that it's vilified in a lot of ways, but I think that it's. Uh, it's a little bit unwarranted. Like it's it's such a green energy. Um, I, I really think that it should play a bigger part in the, our energy future. What about Fukushima, though? Is that is there a, a warning there? Do you think? What are the lessons learned from that accident? Yeah, I like if you look at if you look at nuclear on a or sorry if you look at all energy sources on a death per kilowatt basis, like how hmm. many deaths result from electricity, the nuclear, including Fukushima and, uh, and Chernobyl is still by far the lowest. Hmm. And hmm. I think that what's happened is that, I mean, certainly they're terrible and it's really expensive to clean up. Um, but on an aggregate, like if, if all of the deaths from windmills happened in uh, from 20 years all happened in a single event i think that people would be a lot more terrified of windmills but because they're sort of spread out geographically and over time that i think people are um people are fine with it whereas because there's sort of one major event that happens in nuclear every 20 years that people oh yeah there you go human cost of electricity <laughs> yeah um, yeah there is i mean there is one aspect that's a bit hard to take account of isn't there because not only do you you know like uh the, the um deep water accident in the gulf of mexico and what was that 2011 yeah. um you know the effects of that are largely gone and in 20 years will be completely gone and um and fukushima is going to be a problem for a thousand years or more i don't know but hundreds of years i, I would suspect you know um i don't know i i hear yeah. what you're saying that it is it, clearly by any objective measure it is far safer than coal or, or oil and gas um but i but it is it does play it plays quite well for the anti-lobby when the accidents are so sort of profound in a way yeah, and yeah, and you you can't dispute that. It's there wherever you build a factory, there is going to be an inherent risk. Mm. You hope that as things get better, um, like Chernobyl happened because uh, one of the operators shut down every single one of the safety features, and so when a meltdown started to happen, nothing was there to kick in. Huh. Um, Fukushima happened because it was built on a fault line, and a tsunami went into you know, and it mm. shut down all the backup diesel generators. Mm. You would think, you'd hope that with, you know, building new generators um, with new, with like digital safety backups and somewhere seismically, you know, where uh, natural disasters don't happen, like the Canadian Shield, then maybe, maybe um, accidents are less likely to happen. But you're right, mm -hmm. there's always going to be a risk of it. Yeah, and so another um just as a footnote to sort of energy sources i do i, I also i mean I, 
I agree with you. I think we need these big industrial scale energy generation schemes like nuclear um, to sustain the kind of lifestyles we seem to want, especially in the West. Um, I, d I do also think that there's we don't pay enough attention to the you know, I, I think the idea of kind of this distributed, local, small scale generation, even home scale generation, I think is really awesome. And kind of uh, in principle, I just think that's that's clearly a way to give yourself resilience and a sort of strategic um, agility, if you like. Um, that I think is 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 really cool. So you know, I live in a small community, a thousand people. We have our own power company. Um, I would totally advocate them exploring all sorts of avenues for uh, energy generation. Um, and here in Nova Scotia, the very little research really relatively goes into tidal energy, wave energy, things that seem like yeah, why wouldn't you be experimenting with those things in a first world country with lots of scientists. Um, but another thing I just heard on the radio uh, a couple of days ago about the UK, they just announced some new energy policy around distributed energy. And I thought there was, they mentioned something that I thought was quite interesting and doesn't get a lot of, um, perhaps not that much attention is paid to it, is the demand side and how uh, one of the problems with meeting energy demand is that it's quite spiky and you need to be able to cope with surges that's one of the reasons why you kind of need high base level and of, of generation. So they were talking about things like more, you know, one of the offshoots of connected smart homes and things, once you've got things like freezers and fridges and stuff plugged into the internet, which seems ridiculous, uh, but you can start to potentially influence how they consume power, which I'd never really thought much about before. Um, is there a lot in Canada going on on that side, do you think, in the wake of, I'm just asking that question, in the wake of what they announced in the UK the other day, which I'm not sure I could articulate? <laughs> um, I think, I, I don't think so. Like you don't, you don't hear too much of, certainly there's not a lot of individual efforts. Uh, in Alberta, our, our carbon tax is non-revenue neutral, so the the government uses the money to to bring a bunch of um, it allows individuals to purchase or to have government employees come in and install like LED lights and smart um, thermostats. Uh, and I think that th smart thermostats are sort of a way to be more energy efficient within the home. Um, so I think on an individual basis, it. Not a lot of people do it, but I think that um, things like the carbon tax and um, government initiatives can help sort of push people in the right direction to do that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The, and like these little policies, um, or they seem little, but they actually do contribute to how we behave. You know, I mean, I also want to mention, since we're talking about distributed systems, that the, go the goal one of the goals, yes, Matt, is to have a independent architectural, parallel architecture where mm. uh, energy is, is sufficient in these communities. But, the, but another goal, another big goal that we talked about earlier is to also reduce global 
suffering in some way, right? Make make the human existence better. And if, you know, maybe one measure of that is by reducing total carbon footprint. So I urge folks to not just think about, but go and look at data on how much it cost, how much energy it costs to produce a solar panel and how much oil is burned during, you know, for, for per solar panel, right? So it's nice to reduce your electricity bill, but um, you're increasing, yeah, I mean, maybe you are, maybe you aren't increasing the global electricity bill by doing, by using a non, you know, a net negative technology. Yeah, I, I, I did my, like a carbon footprint thing once and I was so appalled at the consequences of flying somewhere <laughs> that I had to, I pretty much had to stop thinking about it. <laughs> because, you know, because I, I mean, I fly probably more than the average person, well, definitely more than the average person. And um, it's shocking. shocking yeah, you, much, you almost uh, had how to, much fuel that burns. You almost had to move to a real town, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it is kind of, it, it, I mean, on some level, it is crazy to be talking about LED light bulbs when right. you go sit on I-10 in Houston. I right. mean, it's the number of people <laughs> accelerating 2,000 kilograms of metal up to 75 miles an hour on a good day, not at rush hour, uh, in order to get themselves to, to go and buy a pint of beer. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, never mind going to work or taking someone to hospital or the kids to school or something quote unquote useful slash noble i mean it's almost seems hopeless to me it's like right. wow we are so privileged and wasteful i wouldn't shift one of the one of the videos we're coming up with in the next couple months is a look at people's individual emissions and where they can actually make a difference in their lives by um things that they can cut out. Um, and so just looking at it on like a percentage basis on like food and travel and air travel and stuff like that. So um, because yeah, you're right. That's it's one of the things that people don't really pay attention to. And it is it is crazy that people will push LED light bulbs and then fly to Asia <laughs> and think that they're uh, doing good for the world. Um, you know, and on the other hand, people have a right to travel. And so mm -hmm. it's sort of like a, a value judgment for themselves on like to them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, yeah, it's again, I mean, this, this, this just reflects the nuanced nature of this whole debate, right? I mean, it is difficult and we face difficult decisions if we're going to, um, make progress and increase the overall level of human happiness like like Graham said and and I, I what I love about what energy minutes doing is the education and data have to underlie that sensible debate right um, because if, if they're not there it it does well it's not this isn't even a prediction I mean we know that it degenerates very quickly into nonsense and fake news and whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just well, let's let's uh, switch gears a little bit here and i want to ask you aaron how do you make your 
media? How do you, how do you create your content? The the videos and the infographics and stuff. Um, so we have we have uh, we sit down and we decide on a topic that we want to cover, and then one of us will go off and um, talk to people, um, research it fairly extensively, and and we always Alex is especially really good at making sure that everything is sourced um, correctly, um, so that we can put out content that we're comfortable with, right. and uh, and then we have a really great animator from Lithuania, and. So we, we give him just like a script and he comes up with these really brilliant graphics. He has his own style that has really sort of defined the energy minute style. And then it's sort of a couple back and forth between us and him. And then we provide him a voiceover and then the, the video shows up about a month later. Cool. Nice. Well, it looks really good. Uh, look forward to seeing some more, some more videos and some more graphics. <clears throat> so we've got a question that we ask every guest, which is, yeah. What are you reading at the moment? Um, what am I reading? Are you guys both geologists, by chance? Ish. Recovering. Ish? Recovering. So I'm reading a book right now called The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth <laughs> Colbert. This sounds cheerful. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Talk about prediction. It's so. Oh. The uh, geologists have officially proclaimed that we're in a new period called the Anthropocene, where if alien geologists a million years from now come down and study this point, they'll be able to see a distinct difference in the geologic record, which is um, changes that we've made. Right. And so part of it is part of it is like a and of a lot of species. Part of it is redistribution of flora of fauna and flora. And it's like undertone. So especially it's really interesting. Um, but you don't need for it to be um, cool. It sounds good. Tell tell us the uh, the author's name again. It's Elizabeth Colbert. Um, yeah, and it won a Pulitzer Prize last year. So, it's, uh, I'm not the only one who likes it. What about you, Matt? Uh, I uh, I left the fascinating little statistics book that I mentioned. Uh, I think probably on the last show um, at home. I was halfway through it, so I've picked that up again. Um, I've got. I should. I should like tweet a picture of my current bedside table because it's got probably 20 books on it. <laughs> so they're getting out of control. I need to make some tough decisions because I just actually bought a couple new books. Um, on holiday, I read, uh, what's, oh, what's he called? William Gibson's Neuromancer, which I've not read before. It is a very uh, well-known best-selling book from the 80s, I believe, sort of a techno-punk, one of the original techno-punk novels about, well, a, a dystopian future, let's just say. Kind of um, in the in the same vein as, uh, um, oh God, what's it called? You know, what's that Harrison Ford movie that they're 
Blade making, Runner. The Blade Runner that they're making it. So I think I was I must have seen the Blade Runner um trailer or something for the new one and picked that off my bookshelf because I think I've had it for ages. Anyway, it's it is pretty awesome, but it's also kind of wild. Like <laughs> I feel like it would have gone down better in my in my teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't make me feel old or anything. Um, yeah. What about you, Graham? What are you reading? You're always reading something interesting. I just finished a book called Straight to Hell by John Lefevre. It's a sort of like an in behind the scenes look at the investment banking business. So it's pretty light on investment banking content, but it is it's like a hilarious look at this guy's life and the lives of investment bankers while they're working. It's fun. I mean, it's, it's very funny if you're into like derogatory dark humor, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's not one, not one for the kitties. Uh, yeah. Right. I'll say, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so the book, the book was good. It was entertaining. I, I, I don't know, just, again, light on content. So whatever, if you're looking for a quick read, that's it. But I just started a book that I think Matt will be interested in. And, uh, it's called Stuff Matters by Mark Miodonic. That's how okay. I'm gonna that's how I'm gonna tackle that name. Yeah. Um, it's it's he's a material scientist. He's he, I think he's a materials physicist, and right. he explains mm -hmm. in a in the style of prose his experience with the structure and beauty of materials. Uh, so I have high hopes for this book. So I'll report back next week and let you know how it goes. Yeah, that sounds cool. Interesting. Yeah. Right on. Cool. Aaron, thank you for joining us. It was a great talk. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot, Aaron. I'm uh, very enlightening. I'm glad you're uh, doing the work you're doing. So thanks to you and Alex for your advocacy and um, helping keep that conversation about energy policy and uh, our energy future civil and informed indeed <laughs> see you guys next week on undersampled radio bye bye